Awesome. Well, let me just pray before we start. I just feel like I want to pray, which is always good. And, uh, and then we'll have a look at what, what I believe God's saying to us today. Lord, we thank you for any opportunity to hear from you. And our prayer this morning is that our hearts would be open to what you would have to say, particularly as we look towards the year at, the, at these early stages of the year. And I just pray that during this time that you would remind us of the mission that you have for us, that there is no plan B, but we are your plan A, the church of Jesus Christ, that, is, that you have left here with the mission to, to tell the world about you and introduce more people to you. Lord, I pray that as, we, as I share this morning, that, uh, that our hearts would be open and that we would truly hear from you and, and be encouraged to, to go throughout this year living a life on mission. Amen. Well, do we have any Star Wars fans here? A few. Well, I recently have rekindled my relationship with Star Wars. Uh, I'm not going to go as far as saying that I am a Star Wars um, nerd or an enthusiast, as some may call them, but I'm definitely a Star Wars acquaintance. And a lot of that has been uh, spurred on by the fact that Carter, our five-year-old, has become an incredibly huge uh, Star Wars fan. Uh, There's no more superheroes in our house. It's all about Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Uh, He does tend to to push towards the dark side a little bit. And uh, we we have a a two two lightsaber a day battle policy in our house. He always wants to be Darth Vader. But we know, if you're a Star Wars enthusiast, that in the end, they always come good. So we'll get there in the end. But but we're right into Star Wars at the moment, and, and if you've got kids, you know that when they watch a movie, they watch a movie. So over the Christmas break, we started watching episodes four, five, and six, and we, it has been played countless times in our house already. The other day, we watched episode seven, and it's, it's just fantastic. But I kind of rekindled my relationship with Star Wars when, before Christmas, Rogue One came out. And, uh, and it's a, a, I went and saw it, and uh, it's a, a really good movie. I found it really interesting. But there's kind of an analogy that I want to pull out of Star Wars today and have a think about as we look at the Word of God this morning. But if you're a Star Wars enthusiast or above, or at least watched it, you would know that in 1977, the first movie came out, and it was called A New Hope. And it's the fourth story. Try and, yeah, it's hard to get your head around, but it's the first one that came out, but it's the fourth story in the mix. And it's all about the fact that you've got um, these guys here. You've got the bad guys, which are known as the Empire, which is Darth Vader and the Stormtroopers. You've got the good guys, which are the Rebel, and it's the classic case of good versus evil, having a fight. And, and what's happening in this movie, episode four, the original, is that the bad guys have created this, this weapon, this ship called the Death Star, which is like the size of a planet, and its purpose is to destroy other planets. And episode four in New Hope is all about the battle to, to defeat that and to destroy it so that the bad guys don't keep going around uh, senselessly destroying planets and, and, you know, it's a it's classic story. But what we see in this is that the, the, uh, the rebels have plans to the Death Star. They have the schematics of it. And we, we don't know where they got them from, but what we do know is at the end of the movie, Luke Skywalker uses the Force and, and he drops this um, phaser-type proton-y thing shooting out of a 
starship uh, into this hatch on the Death Star and this tiny, there's people here who are disgusted at my lack of knowledge. Uh, there's There's this tiny little starfighter that manages to destroy this massive planet-sized Death Star simply because it hit the right spot and this chain reaction started and it, and it blew up. And so for 40 years, fellow Star Wars enthusiasts have been under the impression, I could be wrong on this, but I've got the microphone, so go with me. Address me later in privately. It's what it says in the Bible. If you've got an offense with a brother, come and see them privately. So if I get this wrong, you just, just bear with me. But I, my understanding is that for 40 years, we didn't know where they got the Death Star schematics from. And for 40 years, we've always thought, well, at least I have always thought, that it was just a lucky shot. That somehow Luke Skywalker just landed it in the right hatch on the right point that they knew they had to go and and exploit this weakness or something but they it was just a lucky shot it was like the great story of the underdog these these few rebels that were left in their tiny little spaceships fighting against this massive weapon and it's a great story of the underdog but then Rogue One came out last year 40 years since this movie And what we discover in this story is we find out how they obtained the schematics to the Death Star, which we knew they had them. That's fine. Star Wars enthusiasts can agree with me. We knew that they had the plans and they got them from somewhere. But something that came out in Rogue One is that, and it changed the whole way that I looked at this other movie, because Rogue One is literally right before this storyline. I know this is confusing, but when the latest movie that came out, it's like a prequel to this original movie. But what we discover in it is, and it changes the way we look at the whole new movie, that the whole way that they destroyed the Death Star, is that it wasn't a lucky shot. It wasn't the greatest story of the underdog in the universe and science fiction. It wasn't a fluke. It actually shows us in Rogue One that the... If, you've, if you're lost, that's okay. This isn't a true story. It's fiction. Uh, it shows us that the guy who engineered and designed this weapon actually did it under duress. He didn't want to. He was forced to do it. So he built into this massive weapon a weakness that if any small ship was able to hit that, that it would start a chain reaction that destroyed it. So for 40 years, we've all called it the lucky shot, the the battle of the underdog, the, the greatest story. And then Rogue One comes out and it completely destroys the way that we thought of this movie, well, at least it did for me. Because no longer is it the lucky shot, now it's actually a strategic mission where the rebels, even though they were small and seemed insignificant, were actually set up to win before they even entered the battle. Before they even got a chance to get into their starfighter thingamajigs and fly towards the Death Star, they were already set up, positioned, and ready to win because the architect had designed this weakness into the Death Star. The greatest story of the underdog but everything we, that I kind of assumed and knew about the original movie was all changed when I understood this 
When I think about the greatest story of the underdog that we know of, I can't help but think of David and Goliath. Isn't it true that, that in Sunday school, in church, even in business and in any kind of discussion, when you want to talk about, hey, what's a great example of the little guy taking on the big guy and winning against all odds? What's the greatest story of the underdog? We're always going to think back to David and Goliath. But what if everything we thought about that story was wrong also? What if the Sunday school version of the story that we think of maybe isn't as correct as it really could be? Just like for Star Wars enthusiasts, we, this, this is what I'm talking about. When I think of David and Goliath, I think back to maybe the 1,000 sermons I've heard on it, 1,001 now. I think back to Sunday school and flannel boards. Is anyone that old? Yeah? Flannel board stories in Sunday school. And and I think of this. I I picture this battle where there is like this huge menacing giant and this little meek and mild David who just happens to stumble out on a battlefield or, or, uh, you, you know, with his toy and just has a lucky shot that takes out a giant. This is the, the this is amazing. Um, this is the, the kind of imagery that comes into my head when I think about David and Goliath. And I, I'm sure that you would all think the same, although some of you are just so enthralled by the quality of this video that I found on YouTube at 11 o'clock. But what it comes down to is the story of David and Goliath Goliath in my mind has always been about this little boy who was full of courage but no ability and just through his faith in God and the help of God stepped out on a battlefield and had a lucky shot that somehow got past the defenses of Goliath and and took him out and took everyone by surprise. But I want to propose today that perhaps everything that we know or think or have been led to believe or created in our mind about this story could actually be incorrect. That maybe it was a little bit different. Let me paint the picture. So it's about 1025 BC, which is a long time ago. And, uh, and the Philistines are a, a nation from the area we now know as Greece. And they've come across the Mediterranean Sea. And they're starting to inhabit the land that the Israelites are on. And uh, the, the geography of the land looks a little bit like this. You come off the sea and you have coastal plains. And then you head up to the foothills, which are called the Shephala. And then you get up to the top of the mountain ranges where the big cities were, Jerusalem, Hebron, Bethlehem. And at this point in history, the Philistines have come across the ocean or across the sea and they inhabited the coastal plains. So they've taken over all the land down there close to the ocean, close to the sea. And they're now decided that they want to head up to the top of the mountain range and take out these cities. So as they're starting to head up the foothills of the Shephelah, Saul grabs the army of the Israelites and he starts coming down the mountain. And they meet in the valley of Elah. The Philistines on one side the Israelite army on the other side, uh, exactly like this. And they sit there for 40 days. 
Every day, Goliath comes out and, and they propose a very intelligent method of fighting. They say, instead of us just having a, a Braveheart-style reenactment in the middle of the valley, how about you just send out your best warrior, we'll send out our best warrior, they'll have a great game of chess in the middle of the valley, and whoever wins, wins it for the whole army, and whoever loses, loses it for their army. So the Israelites camp out, the Philistines camp out, every day Goliath comes out to taunt them. And Jesse sends his son David with bread and cheese to see his brothers on the, the, the military front. Yeah, menacing. And David gets there, and, and we know the story. It, it's, we've heard it a thousand times. He sees this giant, and he says, listen, I can deal with this. He tries on the armor of Saul. It doesn't work. He goes out there with his little slingshot, takes out the giant, removes his head, and, uh, and the rest is history, and we know that story. But we always look at David and say, David is the underdog. We always use things like the little guy, or we say all he had was his sling. All he had was a few rocks against this seasoned warrior and giant of Goliath. But I did some research on this, and, and there's a guy named Malcolm Gladwell, if you want to find out more, you can look at him on YouTube. He, he actually shared this, what he discovered about David and Goliath on a TEDx talk as a, as a business metaphor. And he talks about the fact that we look at David and say all he had was his slingshot. And we think about a child's toy, although I was never allowed to play with a slingshot as a child, but that's okay. They're dangerous. Uh, but we think about and imagine this child walking out onto the battlefield with this little slingshot and this giant kind of laughing at him, which he does. But there's something that, that I guess Sunday school has, a, has made us think in that it's a, a child's toy. But in researching, there's history that says that, that uh, the slingshot was actually one of the most important and critical parts of an army. In ancient military, you had three different components of warriors. You had your cavalry, which were horses and chariots, and uh, well, people on them. The horses didn't fight. Um, that's Lord of the Rings or something. Uh, the second one was armored infantry, which was swords and spears and armor and shields and things like that. And the third one was artillery, which was archers and slingers. And this is what David was. He, he was a slinger. We know that when he cared for his sheep, his father's sheep, he had taken out lions and bears before. He, it wasn't a child's toy that he was walking down with. It was actually a military weapon that made a big part of the army. There's, there's history to suggest that slingers in these times were often the difference between an army winning a battle or losing a battle. Not the strength of their cavalry or their heavy infantry, but actually their slingers. See, this little child's toy that we think about was two pieces of leather with a, a rock in it, obviously, that the, they would swing above their head six to seven times a second. When the rock left, it would be traveling at 35 meters per second. And at a slinger in a, an army back then could knock a bird out of the sky at 200 yards, which is 180 meters. That's an incredibly accurate shot. 
So whilst we want to think that David walked down there with a child's toy and fired a little bit of a pebble at Goliath, he was actually walking down there carrying one of the most deadly weapons that were available on that day. And he was a lot closer in this valley than 200 meters from Goliath. The other thing that researchers have found out is that in the valley of Elah, the rock composition there is made out of beryllium sulfate, which I know you guys already know. And you would also know that that rock is twice as dense as a normal rock. So the little pebbles that David picked up were twice as heavy as a normal rock that a slinger would use. And scientists, aka people smarter than me, have determined that the ballistic stopping power, so at the point where that little pebble hit Goliath in the head, the ballistic stopping power of that would be the same as a forty-five caliber handgun. So here we have Goliath standing there with his sword, and uh, as my good friend Jeff to me, Jeff said to me, David literally brought a gun to a hand fight, to a sword fight, knife fight, whatever the saying is. I'll check with him later. But you know what I mean. So here we want to think that David had this little pot shot at Goliath with this rock, but the science actually tells us that the rocks are denser, that the accuracy was incredible to be able to hit a bird out of a sky, that it w- and it had the ballistic stopping power the same as a handgun. And perhaps the story that we think of David being the underdog is, is a little bit less believable. Goliath also had a different expectation when he said, you know, come to me, let's have, a, let's have a battle here. He was saying, bring me the same as you, same as me. He was waiting for somebody to come down the mountains from the Israelite army that was ready to have a hand-to-hand combat fight with him. He wasn't expecting a highly trained and accurate slinger to take a sniper shot halfway down the mountain. He was expecting the Israelites to send out another heavy, big, experienced warrior. Goliath was standing there with, I think, 125 pounds of bronze armor, a shield, a spear, everything else that he was with. He was waiting for somebody to come close to him because he was experienced in hand-to-hand combat. The heavy shot, the slow fight. He wasn't expecting a slinger to come down the mountain and take him out from a distance. To David, with the ability and the experience to perhaps knock a bird out of the sky or at least a a lion or a bear in a moving target, seeing this giant of a man who was slow moving, had a few more gray hairs than him, was burdened down with armor and with weapons that were so heavy that he had to have somebody help him. He was a sitting target as he came down that mountain. The other interesting thing that I found is the, the speculation on Goliath and his health that has been researched by scientists and particularly the medical community asking some questions about Goliath. Why did he not anticipate David's attack? Why did he need an attendant to help him? In verse 7 and 41 of 1 Samuel 17, it says, Goliath is being led by a shield bearer, or some translations say an attendant. People have asked the question, why did he need help if he was such a great and seasoned warrior? 
Why did he need somebody to help him? Was he injured? Was he too old? Could he not move fast? Was he awkward, uncoordinated? What was it that he, he needed help with? In verse 43, Goliath clearly says, Am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? Where other verses tell us that David walked with a shepherd's staff. So the medical community have asked, Why does he come with, why, why has he seen David with sticks? Well, this is really interesting, but the most common explanation for a giant in the modern world, in, in history, is this medical condition called, I'm going to pronounce this right, looking over at the doctors, acromegaly. Oh, it's a disorder that results in giantism. Uh, it's a excess growth hormone and stuff like that. Some famous examples that we might know of are Andre the Giant, um, the great Carly, if you're into WWE. But scientists have actually done some thinking and some research about some of these conditions that Goliath states that he has just from, this, from the text and have determined and, I guess, um, theorized that Goliath was actually suffering from the condition of acromegaly, which makes people grow into larger, big hands, big jaws, big foreheads, big feet. But there's some other symptoms that are about it that are really interesting. We've got common things like joint pain, thicker skin, deepening of the voice, headaches, and problems with vision. Two things being profoundly nearsighted and having issues with double vision. And so scientists have looked at the text here and said, Goliath demands that the warrior that they choose come to him. He doesn't anticipate or even expect the shot that comes from David. And he looks at him and sees sticks when David was carrying a single stick. And so the medical community have put this theory together that perhaps Goliath was not this this great beast of a man, the perfect fighting warrior that we have pictured him to be. But perhaps he was a man who struggled with this and struggled with the symptoms of it. And I look at this story and, and this research that has been found and I think it's not the story of the underdog. David is not the story of a, a young boy who somehow worked up the courage to step out onto the field and into that valley for a battlefield. But he, it's a story of a young man who was positioned by God. He was purposed to do something and he was set up to win even before he stepped onto that battlefield. When he arrived with cheese and bread for his brothers and wondered why nobody was taking out Goliath, it wasn't this incredible faith to step out on the battlefield. He looked down the valley at a man and said, he is old, he is slow, and he's not expecting what I'm about to hit him in the head with. And he stepped up to the battle and took out the giant. What does this mean for us? What do I feel like God's saying to us as we start the year? Well, I'm loving this quote at the moment from William Booth, the the first general of the Salvation Army and, and the founder. And he says and reminds us a long time ago, over 150 years ago, that we are not sent to minister to a congregation 
and be content if we keep things going. We are sent to make war and to stop short of nothing but the subjugation of the world to the sway of the Lord Jesus. So that's what we are called to do as Christians, as a church. It's not simply just to maintain and have Sunday services, which are great. They serve a purpose and they have a reason. But the whole reason we are here, our whole mission in life is we are sent to make war and to stop short of nothing but the whole world coming to know Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. The reality of what you've signed up for as a Christian is not to sit at the top of the valley and have cheese sandwiches with the Israelite army like David was bringing for his brothers. But the reality is that we live in a war zone, that we were born behind enemy lines and our mission is to fight with this calling on our life. Ephesians 6 verses 12 and 13 tell us that we are in a wrestle, a spiritual battle, and therefore we need to take up the whole armor of God. Not just turn up on a Sunday and have church together, but to understand that we live in a war zone, that there's a battle happening, and we are reminded and warned so many times in the scriptures to be ready to fight. Because we are not the underdog We are not the timid and meek little Christians that have to sit quietly in our workplaces and listen to the giant roar from the valley below. We're not the lucky shot crew who every now and then might be able to slip one past the defenses of the enemy. We do not need to sit stalemate on the hill waiting for some amazing divine intervention to just knock the giant down without our involvement. We already have been positioned. We already have been purposed and on a mission, and set up to win before we even set on to the battlefield. Imagine if you had to go out and play a game of soccer, or cricket, or anything sporty, and you knew that no matter how you performed, no matter the conditions of the field or the weather, no matter the teammates that you were with, no matter the, the opposition you were playing against, that at the end of the game, you were going to win. And all you had to do was step out on to the battlefield. That's the position that we live in as Christians. God has already overcome, already won the battle for us. But not only that, he set us up and positioned us to be victorious in every battle that we face. So in 2017, three things in, oh, five minutes. That's going to be a mission. Number one. As we enter the battle this year to fulfill the mission that Christ has for us, number one, we need to call it what it is. 1 Peter 5.18 says, Stay alert, watch out your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I think one of the greatest things that we can neglect to do as Christians is actually forget that we have an enemy or ignore that we have an enemy. Because the moment that we decide to just camp out in a stalemate and not enter the battle, we got to remember that we're reminded here that the enemy is not sitting quiet. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, if I was running, if I saw a lion prowling around, I would run. I would move because that would make it harder to catch, I hope. 
as long as I'm not the slowest guy. So we can't sit still. We have to be people who are in the battle. When I was about uh, young, um, 15, I think, I had a paper run. And uh, I used to deliver the star around Rankin Park, probably to your house before I knew you. Um, sorry. And, and a bunch of catalogs, and I used to pay my brother to help me. I once paid my cousin 20 cents to help me for an hour. It was awesome. Um, and, and in our street across the road, there was this, there was this dog named Max, and he was, he was a horrible dog. Uh, I think, like, very violent, very aggressive, so much so that the, the owners actually had him on a chain, um, chained up, even in their yard, because he was just not safe. He was one of those breeds that I don't think you're allowed to have anymore. And every time I would go to his letterbox, this dog would charge at me. And it would run as fast as it could with spit going everywhere and thousands of teeth on display. And then the chain would grab it. And I, I, I'm not recommending this, of course. It is cruel. But the chain would grab this dog and it couldn't get there. And then it would have to resort to barking and growling at me. Except one time when the chain wasn't on. That was fun. It's the fastest I've ever run in my life. And, uh, but it, it, it makes me think exactly like this. See, Stephen Furtick says this quote. He says, The lion may roar, but I see his leash, so I keep pressing on. And that's what we need to be in 2017. We need to call it what it is. Realize that we are in a battle for the lost souls, for those that are still caught in darkness. And we need to acknowledge that, yes, there's an enemy that will bark and growl and perhaps run at us as we try and deliver the good news into their letterbox. How good was that? But there's a, there's a chain that keeps them back. They can't. The enemy cannot come at us because our God has already set us up to win. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to d- devour. We need to call it what it is. I'm running out of time, but I want to I tell you a quick story. Um, I believe for Wildfire, we are in, which is our youth ministry here, we are in this incredible season. God... Uh, we, we truly believe as a team God has called us to do something unique. And we're now in a season of, of the ministry where things we dreamed about are now becoming to-do list items, action items. Things that we once sat and thought, you know, it's hard to believe God would ever do this. The doors are now being opened for that. And, and for, for Mel and I personally, there, you know, there was things that God spoke to me about when I was 16 that are starting to unfold in my life now. So we're in this really interesting season where, where things are really happening in terms of ministry and where God's leading us, but, but the lion is roaring. You ever have those seasons where God's doing something incredible in your life and then suddenly it feels like everything's coming against you? And the other night, um, you, you would know, many of you would know my, my views on cockroaches, um, they're evil, they're terrible. I believe it's the right of every man to stand on the bed and scream if there's a cockroach in the room while his wife or children kill them. Um, that's just the way it is. There's a whole story to it that we don't have time. But, but cockroaches are my absolute weakness. The other night, uh, we were down at our new venue for wildfire doing some painting and, and I was just in that room just dreaming about what God was going to do in that space. And I get home into bed about 11 o'clock and have the worst night's sleep of my life. I couldn't even call it sleep. 
was tossing and turning. I was having terrible dreams. Mel was having the same thing. And I just really felt like the lion was doing its best to roar at me from its chained position. And uh, we woke in the, at some point in the night to hear, this is embarrassing, but scratching in a, in a cardboard gift bag on the end of our bed. And yeah, there was a cockroach in it. And we don't have cockroaches in our house. I mean, we do, but they don't last long. And, and as we turned the light on, there was a cockroach running on my side of the bed. So I did what every man does, and I screamed and jumped on the bed and waited for Mel to kill it. And uh, when I woke up the next morning, and just bear with me because I know this might sound silly, but I got to this point on Saturday morning absolutely exhausted, knowing that I, we had a working bee there that I was sharing in church that had so much on my plate at the moment in terms of God doing incredible things. And I just got to the point where I just had to laugh and think, Really? You're throwing cockroaches at me now? Like this, this is the battle that we're in, that you are so scared by what God's doing through the youth ministry of this church that you can't pull us down in other ways. So now you're literally throwing cockroaches on me while I sleep to try and roar like a lion at me. And the thing that I want to share, and that might not mean a lot to you, did to me because they're cockroaches. But the thing is that when, as soon as I acknowledged what it was, that it wasn't a delay in getting the pest spray out, that it wasn't just a rough night because it was hot, but it was the enemy doing his best to wear us down. The minute that I acknowledged that in my life and said, we are in a battle, let's call it what it is, everything changed. My strength came back. My enthusiasm came back. So the first thing that we need to do this year is to call it what it is. Secondly, moving quickly, we need to know who we are. We are people who are positioned to win. Romans 8.37 says, No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus who loved us. 1 John 5.4 says, For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. David knew who he was. He was a slinger disguised as a shepherd. And I believe that is the great calling for Christians in this world today. We need to be shepherds who love and care for people, that show love to those that are around us, to be light in the world. But deep down underneath, we are highly trained assassins capable of fighting the enemy where needed and entering the battle at any time. Know who we are this year, slingers disguised as shepherds. And thirdly, step up to the battle. David didn't join his brothers and the rest of the army for cheese sandwiches, but he knew what had to be done. He stepped up and he stepped out. He wasn't the only slinger there. The army had a whole section that was devoted to warriors who could fire a slingshot, but he was the only one that was willing to step into the battle. See, each one of us has been positioned in our world, not my world, but your world each to their own. No one can better reach the people in your world than you. Perhaps perhaps you are the only opportunity that that person will ever have to see Christ. What would happen if this year we all made one commitment to step up to the battle? What could we see happen in our world 
in our workplaces, in our schools, in this city, if we simply just stepped up, calling it what it is, knowing who we are, and walking on to that battlefield. I'll finish with this. If we walked with intention, on purpose, and realized that we are positioned to fulfill our mission, if we began to believe that we are capable of all he asks us to do, to stay connected that, to, the, to this community that allows us to stay growing and remain committed to the cause of Christ. What could our world look like by the end of this year? When we call it what it is, we know that we are people who are set up and positioned to win already as soon as we simply step onto the battlefield. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have already made us overcomers. That every obstacle, every challenge in this world is a victory that you've already had for us. That every valley that we walk through, we don't walk alone, that you are by our side. But Lord, we thank you that you have done this for us for a reason. That we would fulfill the mission of this earth to take your message across this globe, starting with the worlds that we walk in every single day. Lord, as we go forth in 2017, I pray that as a church that we would call it what it is, that we would realize that we are in a battle for the souls of this world, and that's our responsibility to do that work for you, and that we would know who we are, that we are people that you have positioned to win, that you have made us capable of all that you would ask of us, and that we are already victorious in everything that we do in your name. We thank you, Lord. Amen.